It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains descriptions of murder and violence against women. It started in the middle of a spring night in 1970, near a White Castle restaurant in Indianapolis, Indiana. Flossie Crawley was on a date with 55-year-old William Love, a friend who she'd known for about one year. But the romantic outing was about to take a fatal turn. As the couple wandered around Massachusetts Avenue, a short, stocky figure appeared out of the darkness. They had just run into 49-year-old Edmund J. Cody. He was drunk, and he was angry. Crawley had met Cody about six months earlier. She worked at Mr. Charlie's Bar, which was also situated on Massachusetts Avenue. That's where Cody and his wife had celebrated their wedding anniversary. Crawley must have made an impression on Cody, who was a wrecker by trade. 
A few months later, he came back and asked her out. The 38-year-old server thought he was joking at first, but he persisted, and she finally agreed. After they went out five or six times, he gave her a 1962 Chevy. It disappeared a couple of weeks later. Then Cody came by again, rolling up in a 1970 Ford. He wanted her to run away to Florida with him. Crawley liked him well enough, and perhaps she was lulled by thoughts of the beach or the heat or the smell of midnight jasmine at twilight. She said yes. When they got back to Indiana a week later, the fantasy came crashing down. Cody confessed that the Ford was stolen, and then he offered to give it to her. I was beginning to have doubts about Ed, Crawley said later. Around this time, William Love asked her out on a date and warned her to stay away from Cody. Love said he'd heard rumors about Cody, that he might be a dangerous man for a woman to be around. This was on March 1st, 1970. On March 14th, Cody returned to the bar where Crawley worked. She told him she didn't want to see him anymore. On March 15th, Crawley went out on her date with Love, and the couple ran into Cody. Love told Cody not to bother Crawley, and then the couple ducked into a nearby White Castle. Cody went in after them. It was 3.50 a.m. Cody started arguing with Love, and then forcibly dragged Crawley out of the restaurant. He threw her down in the parking lot of the White Castle, and then he began beating her. Love ran out of the restaurant just in time to see Cody pull out a pistol and shoot Crawley in the chest. Love ran back inside, but it was too late. Leaving Crawley, Cody sprang to the entrance of the restaurant, opened the door, and shot Love in the chest before fleeing the area. Love was pronounced dead at the scene. It was 4 a.m., and the world was only just about to learn about the enigma that was Edmund J. Cody. Looking down at the body of William Love splayed on the floor of the White Castle, the responding police officers couldn't have realized that they were dealing with a serial killer. Even to this day, the story of Cody and the lives he took has faded into the background of Indiana crime lore. In our research on Cody, we ran into a few issues that spring up in many older cases. Most of the players, the murderer, those who knew him, and those who uncovered his crimes, are dead. The case is technically solved, so the Indianapolis police weren't in a hurry to offer his interviews either. But we want to share this story with you anyway, so we dug into the newspaper archives. We can say with confidence that Cody is one of the worst Indianapolis serial killers you've likely never heard of. This man was a Bluebeard-type killer, luring women into his life only to slaughter them on a whim. And he got away with it for years. Because of a society unable or unwilling to deal with instances of domestic violence. Because too many people looked the other way. We want to show you how a seemingly straightforward shooting in a fast food joint can be just the beginning. A bit like how a child's searing memory or a list of seemingly random words can reveal a long-concealed horror. We want to look at this straight on. (laughs) 
My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenley. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burgerchef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, the murder sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the murder sheet, and this is A Murder at White Castle. After the White Castle shooting, police tracked down Cody quickly, finding him at the wrecking service where he worked. He was arrested for wounding Crawley and murdering Love. But Cody was already on the radar of the law enforcement community at that point. A few months earlier, back in October 1969, Flo Doty had been leafing through the cards in the Indianapolis Police Department's file on missing persons when she happened upon a case she had worked on in 1965. Doty was a detective with Indianapolis's juvenile division. On the job, she did things like grabbing a suicidal 16-year-old before he could throw himself out a shattered window. But her renewed investigation into the disappearance of a local woman was about to take her work in an unexpected direction. A 30-year-old woman named Geraldine Cody had disappeared. But it wasn't her husband who reported her missing. It was her brother from Alabama. That seemed odd to Doty, so she had called the husband in. The husband, of course, was Edmund J. Cody. He told Doty that his wife, Geraldine, had simply left him. But no one ever saw her again. Doty felt suspicious of Cody. But without any firm evidence against him, there wasn't much she could do. But that was about to change. Looking through the cards now, she noticed another missing persons report. This one filed just a few weeks earlier. A woman named Evelyn Cody had disappeared. The report had been filed by her daughter from a former marriage, not her current husband, a man named Edmund J. Cody. It seemed like more than a coincidence. Doty alerted the homicide division, including detectives Frank C. Zunk, and future Marion County Sheriff Jack Cotty, and they started working the case. The first thing they did was track down Geraldine's kids from a previous marriage. It turned out that her son Michael had a story to tell, something he'd been too scared to reveal when his mother first went missing back in 1965. Michael remembered an occasion when his mom and Cody got into a pretty bad fight. Cody ordered Michael out of the house 
and Michael obeyed. But at some point, while he was outside, he crouched down and stole a glance through the basement window. He saw his mother. She looked dead. She was tied up with a knife jutting out of her chest. Michael never saw his mother again, and he was too scared to report what he'd seen to the police. While investigators wrestled with the implications of that revelation, there was a new development. Cody's current wife, Letha, went missing. A son from a previous marriage had reported her disappearance. Cody appeared to have a habit of failing to call the police when his wives vanished. As before, the police had plenty of reason to suspect Cody, but no hard evidence to prove that he actually had done anything wrong. That changed on March 15, 1970, when Cody fired the shot that killed William Love. Now that he was in jail, the mystery surrounding Edmund J. Cody began to attract more public scrutiny. William Anderson, a veteran reporter for the Indianapolis Star, became intrigued by the case. He would write about Cody for close to 20 years, and his reporting on the case is the main source for this episode. If you want to read up on this case, we've included a list of our sources for this episode in our show notes. Digging around in Cody's past, Anderson soon discovered that the man had begun killing women much earlier than most people realized. Back in 1950, a full 15 years before Geraldine Cody vanished, police found Cody's 35-year-old girlfriend Helen shot to death in a parked car. Cody was in the car too. He had been wounded in the chest, but made a full recovery. He was charged with first-degree murder in the case, but the jury instead convicted him of the lesser charge of manslaughter. He was sentenced in June of 1952 to a period of 2 to 21 years. The superintendent of the state police actually wrote a letter urging that Cody serve the full term because he was such a danger to society. If that had happened, he would have stayed in prison until 1973. Geraldine Cody, Evelyn Cody, Letha Cody, and William Love likely would not have died. Instead, Cody was released in July of 1955. He soon started relationships with other women. In some instances, those women seemed to suffer a curse merely by being in proximity to Cody even if he did not directly harm them himself. There was, for instance, the case of Ella Mae Voiles. Cody married her and divorced her. She ended up freezing to death on her family farm. And then there was Dorothy Lee Schaffer. When Cody met her, she was married to another man, John Schaffer. The couple ran a grocery store together. Schaffer felt sorry for Cody who seemed to be having a rough time as an ex-con, and so he treated the other man as a brother. In return, Cody ruined Schaffer's marriage and his business, at least in the grocer's view. Dorothy and Cody ripped Schaffer off in a business deal, costing him, he claimed, $40,000. On April 26, 1958, Schaffer went to the store he once operated with his wife, and she laughed at him. Schaffer said he felt a rage pressing against his chest. His head started to spin. 
After that, he didn't remember anything, he claimed. Schaffer ended up shooting and killing his former wife. He also took some shots at Cody, but Cody escaped. Schaffer was sentenced to 2 to 21 years, the same sentence that Cody received. Even after his arrest for the murder of Love, women associated with Cody still suffered. Flossie Crawley, the woman Cody shot outside the White Castle, recovered from her wounds. But shortly before she was to testify against Cody at his trial, Crawley was beaten at a bar. A few months after that, a woman named Betty White, who knew Cody and had received letters from him after he was imprisoned, was beaten to death in her apartment. She'd been reading an article on Cody at the time of her death. The magazine was found beneath her body. White's four-week-old son was discovered near her unconscious form. The prime suspect in the case was Crawley's brother. Meanwhile, things kept happening in Cody's case, and events took yet another unexpected turn in May of 1970. A worker at a car impound lot noticed a horrible smell coming from a vehicle the police had taken from Cody when they arrested him in March. So the worker popped the trunk and found the very badly decomposed body of Letha Cody, who had been missing since early in the year. For some reason, no one bothered to search the vehicle before. It seemed perfectly clear who bore responsibility for her demise. On January 10, 1970, the date Letha was reported missing, Cody showed up to work with a swollen right hand. He claimed it was because he had just happened on that day to get into a fight with a co-worker. But there was no solid evidence to disprove Cody's excuse, and nothing to definitively tie him to the homicide of his wife. That may sound hard to believe, but police didn't feel like they had enough evidence proving that Cody put Letha in the trunk. That changed in 1980 when Cody finally admitted to killing Letha. He told reporter William Anderson that, during a fight at their home, he strangled her and then stashed her body in the trunk of the car, fully intending to dispose of it in some way. But he never got around to taking care of it before he was arrested. But the failure of law enforcement to quickly search Cody's car after his arrest proved costly. By the time her body was discovered in the trunk, Letha was so terribly decomposed that police could not even determine the cause of her death. This effectively made any prosecution in Letha's case impossible, even though Cody confessed to the crime. He had gotten away with murder. Cody seemed to enjoy the notoriety and attention he earned through his crimes, occasionally even offering confessions or clues related to the real fate of his missing wives. In late 1970, for instance, he told police he had in fact killed Geraldine. He said it was an accident, that he and Geraldine got into a terrible fight and Cody hit her on the side of the head with his fist, killing her. After dropping her kids off with a sitter, Cody claimed he went to get a female friend of his. The two of them constructed an eight-foot wooden box, deposited Geraldine's corpse inside, and drove down to a meatpacking plant in Kentucky. When they arrived, he said they took Geraldine's box to the cold storage room and left it there, amongst many other similar-looking boxes. 
Cody claimed that in later years, he and a female friend would occasionally make the drive down to this meatpacking plant to visit Geraldine. The last time he saw her there, he said, was in February 1970, a full five years after her death. Because of the cold, she remained very well preserved, and she still wore her underclothing as well as a blue dress. Police wondered if Cody was just toying with them, but they still spent a great deal of time and effort to try to find the meatpacking plant. They never had any success. At the same time, Cody was developing a good relationship with William Anderson, the reporter from the Indianapolis Star. Anderson would go on to win a Pulitzer Prize for working on a series about police corruption in Indianapolis. But now he was living a story straight out of a thriller. A reporter trying to piece together a mystery by getting into the head of a notorious serial killer. Cody kept telling Anderson that someday he would give him some clues that would lead him to a body. Anderson kept pushing. And finally, Cody delivered. Let's take a quick break from the murder sheet to tell you about a podcast investigating yet another unforgettable crime. The Orange Tree is a seven-part series about a 2005 homicide that happened near the University of Texas at Austin. The murder of 21-year-old Jennifer Cave, who was shot, dismembered, and left in a bathtub at her friend Colton Petoniak's apartment, continues to haunt the area to this day. Like the Burger Chef murders, this case features plenty of twists and turns, including Colton's flight to Mexico with another UT student, Laura Hall. Both were later convicted in connection with the crime, although Colton has continued to appeal his verdict and claim innocence. The business student turned convicted murderer now says that he doesn't even remember much about the night Jennifer died. The Orange Tree is reported on and produced by Haley Butler and Tanu Thomas, who were both seniors at the University of Texas when they started this project. Together, Haley and Tanu strive to piece together this tragic story in an in-depth podcast that features audio from courtroom scenes and interrogation rooms, prison phone calls, and exclusive interviews with both the perpetrators and the victim's family. You can binge all seven episodes of The Orange Tree today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. 
With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20 percent of your weight in one year in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, back to the murder sheet. He gave Anderson not one clue, but four. One, Kentucky newspaper. Two, the color blue. Three, the number 65. Four, the word chain. Cody told Anderson that those clues should be enough. Surprisingly enough, they actually were. Anderson realized the number 65 likely referred to Interstate 65, a highway connecting Indiana and Kentucky. He contacted Kentucky authorities and asked them for any information they might have on bodies found near I-65. And he also began searching through the archives of Kentucky newspapers, looking for an article about the discovery of such a body. He found one. A Kentucky newspaper covered the story of how, on June 19, 1965, a driver stopped his vehicle along I-65 to look for a lost safety chain for his trailer. They found something else instead, a bundle of bedclothes. There was a foot sticking out of it. They contacted the police. They discovered the body of a woman, nude except for a pair of blue panties. She was wrapped in a sheet a couple of blankets, and a quilt. A pillowcase was pulled over her head, and there was a rope around her neck. Her skull was fractured. She had been dead for a few weeks. Back in 1965, the police in Kentucky had not been able to identify the woman, but her physical appearance and age closely matched that of the missing Geraldine. And in 1980, Cody gave an account of the death of Geraldine, which closely tracked with the condition of the body found in 1965. Hell, he said. I hit her with a hammer and she died. Afterwards, he wrapped her in a blanket, stashed her in the back of the station wagon, loaded in her five kids from a previous marriage, and then set off on a family drive to Kentucky. There was some kind of a car accident just outside of Louisville, which snarled up traffic. So, while his vehicle was stopped, an impatient Cody took Geraldine's body out of the car and tossed it by the side of the road. Geraldine's kids, in the car with Cody, had no idea what he was dumping. All of this was enough to get Cody indicted for Geraldine's murder. But the case ended up getting dismissed for lack of evidence. Once again, he had effectively gotten away with murder. Geraldine's case wasn't even the only instance of Cody giving conflicting tales about the fate of his missing wives. 
There was also, for example, his shifting tale about what happened to his wife, Evelyn. At first, he blamed Flossie Crawley, the woman he had shot outside the White Castle. He said Flossie had shot Evelyn for reasons that weren't entirely clear and that her body had been left under a pile of leaves in Kentucky. The police did not take that claim seriously for a variety of reasons. For one thing, Cody said Crawley killed Evelyn in July 1969. Cody and Crawley did not even meet until September of that year. Crawley offered to take a lie detector test to clear herself. We didn't dig up anything indicating whether or not she actually did this, but it seems obvious that the police never considered her to be a serious suspect in the killing. About a decade later, Cody tried again, offering yet another version of Evelyn's death. In this version, a friend of Cody's who happened to be gay was visiting while Evelyn was out. She returned home unexpectedly and caught the two of them sharing an intimate moment. Cody said Evelyn was horrified, screaming and declaring she would call the police. At that point, Cody said his friend pulled out a twenty-two and shot her. You killed me, said Evelyn. Cody said he offered to take her to the hospital, but it was too late. She was already dead. So Cody and his friend got rid of the body, hiding it near Covington, Kentucky. Cody was never charged in connection with the disappearance of Evelyn. Without any solid evidence, anything he had to say about it was nothing more than a story. When we looked through the National Missing and Unidentified Persons system for Jane Doe's in Kenton County, Kentucky, where Covington is located, our search turned up nothing. In fact, even though Cody was likely responsible for the deaths of several women, he only served time for one homicide, that of William Love, the man he shot outside the Indianapolis White Castle. He never bothered to deny that he pulled the trigger. His defense was on the basis of temporary insanity. He told the jury that he had been drinking and had therefore not been able to fend off the irresistible impulse to murder Love. The jury didn't buy it. Cody was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. He died while still incarcerated, according to the Indiana Department of Corrections. In a 1979 article, Indianapolis Star reporter Richard D. Walton wrote that the convict could still name the Marion County deputy who arrested him for petty larceny in 1938, but cannot remember all the names, much less the sequence, of his ten wives. When he died behind bars, Cody took with him not only the final answers of what happened to Geraldine Cody, Evelyn Cody, and Letha Cody, but other mysteries as well. In 1980, he claimed to have killed a sailor in Cincinnati in a 1944 bar fight. Was this true? If so, who was this sailor? Did his family ever learn what had happened and who had killed him? I scoured online newspaper archives to see if I could find out anything about such a case. But I didn't have any luck. In a letter to Anderson, Cody also cryptically referred to other crimes he had committed. What are these other crimes? Who were his other victims? There is another troubling angle to Cody that has never been fully fleshed out. Cody was alleged to have ties to Norman Z. Flick, 
a notorious underworld figure in Indianapolis at this time, a behind-the-scenes operator known for his illicit connections to police and governmental figures. Cody made several out-of-state trips for Flick, including to Florida. You will remember Cody took Crawley on a trip to Florida in early 1970. Was this a trip for Flick? After Cody was arrested for the murder of Love, the Indianapolis Star reported that Flick and his attorney were alleged to have visited Cody's home and removed some records. What was in those records? What exactly was Cody doing for Flick? We will likely never know. As far as we can tell, almost everyone involved with this case has died. Doty, Zunk, Cody, and Anderson have all since passed away. So we're left to wonder how a man like Cody could have been allowed to go on claiming so many lives for so long. We can take at least some comfort in knowing that Cody spent decades in prison and so that all of his victims, known and unknown, therefore received at least some measure of justice. But what does it say about a society where this can happen? Where women end up staying with a man like Cody, perhaps because they're too scared to leave, or because they have no place to go? Or where investigators don't even begin to search for a slew of missing women until it's too late? Cody's downfall didn't come about until his behavior became so brazen in public that he attacked Crawley and Love in front of witnesses. How was he allowed to act with such impunity for so long? It's important to ask these questions, because as heinous as his crimes were, Cody is no outlier. There have always been men like Cody. There are still men like Cody walking amongst us. And knowing that, and looking straight on at the terror they inflict on others is the only way we can stop them. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast or by searching Murder Sheet. For exclusive content like bonus episodes and case files, become a patron of The Murder Sheet on Patreon at patreon.com slash murder sheet. If you enjoyed listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.